Welcome to episode two of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined in studio as always by my good friend and partner in podcasting, the one, the only, John Sloat. What's going on, Doc? Well, it's a brisk Tuesday morning here in the lovely Winona Lake, Indiana area. Yeah, yeah, here on the campus of Grace Theological Film, Seminary. You could say, even say filmed live. Filmed live, recorded live. <laughs> Indeed. But not produced live. No, no, not at all, not at all. So we're on to episode two. Hard to believe that, that, you know, these are actually making it out into the uh, into the world. And been encouraged by the initial response. Yeah, people seem pleased or they're lying to us. One of the two. Yeah, either, yeah. either way, <laughs> you know, it still puts up the numbers, right? So... Um, we'd love to have you reach out and uh, get in touch with us if you have suggestions for uh, content or things we should talk about, or you just want to tell us we're wrong about something. Yeah, uh, you love can... a good snarky comment. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the the show has a Twitter feed at V and S Pod. So we'd love for you to check that out. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter. And uh, our personal Twitters are also uh, pretty easy to find. I am at Doc Harmon, and you are? At underscore, or excuse me, at John underscore Sloat. Yeah. And you can always email the show at variousandsundrypodcast at uh, gmail.com. So, uh, episode two today, and we are recording the day after the national championship game for college football. Yeah, and uh, you were uh, earlier before pre-show bemoaning how late it was on. Yeah, it's probably you know east you know eastern time zone problems, but uh, you know the game starts at eight o'clock, a little after eight actually, and uh, I finally checked out at about midnight with about half of the fourth quarter left to go, Uh, so it was already pushing four hours at that point. And it was pretty well wrapped up at that point. Yeah, well, right? uh, LSU was up 17, and there was no reason to think that Clemson was going to be able to mount a significant comeback. So Joe Burrow yes. wins his national championship, wins the yep. Heisman as well. Yep. Is he the greatest college quarterback of all time? I've heard that thrown around on Twitter a little bit. Yeah, well, okay. This is where I'm going to uh, put on my curmudgeon, uh, <laughs> my curmudgeon hat. Yeah, you're showing your age, yeah. And simply say that... Uh, we live in an age of ridiculous overhyping of things, yeah. especially in the sports world. So if you watch any, with any consistency, ESPN, FS1, any sort of sports, you listen to sports podcasts, sports radio, whatever it might be, um, you can almost take it to the bank that every week or every other week, there's going to be, was that the greatest fill in the blank. Was that the greatest shot we've ever seen? Sure. Was that the greatest catch we've ever seen? Was that the greatest team that's ever been? And I just get weary of it. Like, I just feel like we're way too close to it. Let's step back after six months, a year, five years and go, let's see how that holds up historically before we're like, oh, he's the greatest college quarterback ever. Yeah. yeah. Like, Let's let's pump the brakes. I think that's fair, particularly with the changing of offenses and philosophies across sure. football, not just college, but also pro. Um, th- things have changed. Yeah, and you know some of these season records. Well, now guys, now Joe Burrow played 15 games. Yeah. So, you know, he broke a the all-time record for touchdown passes in a season, helped by Colt Brennan from Hawaii, 
which I think he did that in either 12 or 13 games. Okay, well, you get two extra games, that helps, yeah. you know? So some of these, like, season records feel a little meaningless to me, to be honest, because you're just playing more games. Just like in baseball when they switched from, what was it, 154 to 162, I mm-hmm. think? Yeah. You know, now you start to evaluate home run records and those sorts of things. You're like, well, you get eight extra games. Like, so... You know, that should put some historical perspective on things. But uh, I will say uh, Joe Burrow, uh, former Ohio State quarterback, transferred out to LSU. uh, And one of the interesting things about Joe Burrow was the fact that from his um, uh, Heisman speech where he mentioned the poverty that he grew up around there in Athens, Ohio, southeast Ohio. Sure. uh, A lot of good has come out of that. Significant uh, money has come in to donations for food banks and stuff. And so it is fun to see him use his platform for good in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And uh, also NFL playoffs this yes. past weekend. It was a great weekend for NFL playoffs. Very entertaining. And upsets. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. The Titans game. Remember was, the Titans, uh, yeah. was incredible. Yeah. I, I, again, you'll see my Ohio State bias coming through, but Mike Vrabel, Former Buckeye is the coach of the Titans yeah. doing a, doing a shockingly good job. No yeah. one saw this coming. Yeah, and and they don't play a, uh, a modern style of football. No, it's old school. They they hand the ball off twenty to twenty five times a game. They throw the ball when they need to. They play really good defense. They create turnovers. Yeah, and uh, lo and behold, that's held up. Uh, yeah. this playoffs the teams that can run the ball and play good defense. Uh, the Forty ers are very much in that camp as well. I think one thing that I was shocked with is how large of a human being Derrick Henry He's is. He's monstrous. <laughs> he looks yes. like 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 a large linebacker playing running back. Yeah. He's huge. And remarkably fast for a man that size. Remarkably fast and punishing. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. looked like toward the end toward the fourth quarter, the Ravens were saying Ah, the offseason really isn't that far away. Right. I don't have to tackle him. <laughs> Why risk out. injury for yes. for tackling him at this point? Yeah, but um, I am glad that the Houston Texans lost because I did not want to see an AFC South, yeah. uh, AFC South, AFC Championship game this weekend. Um, and I actually saw some snarky people on Twitter saying that they were going to flex that game to London or. <laughs> You know, you know, flex another game into that primetime spot. Yeah. So, uh, I thought that was funny. Yeah. And you, you'll have your contrast of styles with the Chiefs and the and the Titans yes. going at it. So very much sort of modern, you know, like uh, fast-paced, spread the ball around uh, offense versus the Titans sort of ground and pound uh, offense. So that would be a nice contrast in style. And then uh, on the other side of the bracket, you've got Green Bay and San Francisco uh, to – Basically traditional powers. Sure, sure. And uh, the question, it's interesting, in both these matchups, you've got one quarterback who is widely regarded as one of the best in the league, you know, Mahomes in the AFC, uh, Rodgers in the NFC, playing against quarterbacks who are question marks, honestly. Sure. Garoppolo Garoppolo in San Francisco, and then obviously Tannehill, whose career has had a remarkable resurrection. Yeah, since leaving Miami and Adam Gase behind. Yeah, yeah. Since (laughs) leaving Adam Gase behind, his career has flourished. I don't know. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, Before we move on from the sports, uh, I think it's it's good to put a placeholder here. Uh, Yesterday, there was some huge breaking news in the world of baseball. Oh, I'm so excited to talk about it. And just for the sake of having 
time to devote to it. We're going to table that, but we are going to come back to that oh about the goodness. Astros getting absolutely crushed by the uh Well, they the were sus- MLB. the coach was suspended for a year, the GM was suspended for a year, and then the owner came in and fired them. Yeah. Yeah. So, we'll cycle back I'm excited either to talk next about week that. or soon to uh to get to get to that story, but our our main topic I would say for today as we have thought about some of the different things that have caught our attention we're constantly watching, uh, trying to keep an eye on trends in the church, trends in culture. And so uh, our topic today was really prompted by, I think you sent me this article. Is that right? Were you the one that found this? Perhaps. I do read this website regularly. Yeah. So yeah. there was an article on uh, the 538 website uh, that uh, basically uh, – and, and why don't you tell me a little about 538 before yeah. we dive into the article? So um, 538 was founded – I think it, I think in, uh, it was either Obama's first term or second term. Uh, around the election season, Nate Silver was working for the New York Times, and uh, by using data and polling, actually predicted ev- which way every state would go, and he predicted them correctly. In 2012. Was it 2012? Not 2016. No, 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 no. no. It was either 2008 or 2012. I can't okay. remember which. Um, but he predicted all of them correctly, which uh, there's 538 uh, electoral votes. So okay. that, that's right. where they get their name. Yep. Uh, and they're focus is to do things that are data-driven. So they're looking Correct. at research uh, and, and interpreting that into some kind of journalism. Uh, they're great followers on Twitter. Uh, their website is interesting. Uh, and when he did this, he was working at the New York Times, uh, he put his website out there and said, highest bidder, I'll come be at your site. And actually ESPN was the highest bidder. And they said, you do whatever you want, just have a sports section. Hmm. And he said, Absolutely. Yeah. And so that's why he's hosted by ESPN. It's a good gig. Uh, which which I think is uh, fascinating and, and fantastic. And I love reading their predictors on who's going to win what what bowl games or, mm-hmm. or playoff games, percentages, all those things are fascinating. Yeah. So the specific article we're going to talk about today, which will be a sort of launching point into a broader topic, sure. is uh, entitled Millennials Are Leaving Religion and Not Coming Back. So this was posted December 12th, so relatively recent here. Yeah. Uh, but this is not the first uh, article along these lines. This is a sort of growing trend that various people have uh, identified and talked about. So uh, given the fact that one of our main interests is sort of the life and ministry of the church and cultural engagement. Uh, it seemed like this would be a good topic for us to discuss. And I am a millennial. I'm, I'm like right in the thick of it. You are our resident millennial. Yes. I am not. So the, the millennials generally, I, I think this article says 81 to 96 are yeah. sort of the birth years. Yep. I've always said it as millennials are ones uh, who uh, remember 9-11 as being formative in their childhood at some point. Okay. That's how I've always sort of yeah. had, my, had my line. Yeah, though I think it. What, what was the definition I saw? Was it eighty-one to ninety? You said ninety-six. Eighty-one to ninety-six. Yeah. yeah. If you're on the very end of that, it's getting tough. It's getting tough to make nine yeah. eleven that sort of defining. But it's a helpful. I think I, a yeah. helpful sort of quick reference. And guide. people disagree about that. Some people yeah. say you know the line is like you were born before nine eleven. You're a millennial. Yeah. You know, there's some there's a lot of debate about it. But the larger point of the article uh, is highlighting this trend that uh, millennials are leaving the church. Yeah. And so um, why don't you talk a little bit about maybe your thoughts on the article here? We'll have links to the article uh, in the show notes so you can uh, follow up with 
tracking these articles because we'll mention a few, I think, here. But what what sort of stood out to you as someone, in one sense, being talked about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think I was they, – they talk about, uh, obviously, the United States. Um, and I think it's important to remember that different parts of the United States are different. Uh, the Midwest, That's an important point, yeah. Yeah, the Midwest is going to have a very different feel to that than the Northeast or the Southeast. Right. Uh, or, yeah. or you know, the the West Coast or the the remainder of the country. So, I think uh, most of this can be seen on the coast more, probably the East Coast and the West Coast. Right. Uh, but uh, but they they make uh, the argument that uh, for generations people in their uh, college years uh, and post college years fall away from religion, uh, uh, stop going to church, and then when they have families and mm-hmm. kids, uh, they begin to come back. And sometimes right. they will marry a spouse who's religious, and that person will bring them back into religious standing. And, and um, I believe that the, the reasoning goes, oh, my children need some kind of moral grounding. Uh, and, right. and, and we need to have a faith in God and be a part of a religious community in order to really ground our children in, uh, in, a, in a good moral standing. Yeah, and that's something I want to come back to uh, eventually here as we talk about this. I think that one of the things that struck me uh, about this particular article uh, is how much uh, the data seems to indicate that um, the parents of millennials— and how the parents raised the, the, the individual millennials yes. was a huge factor in uh, whether or not they ended up coming back to church. Yeah, I think it was something like 80, 40, 84% of, of parents who brought their children to a Protestant church, those children continued to come to when church. When it was when, both parents. When it was both parents, yes. Correct. And that's another interesting dynamic is that it's not just one parent, but two parents that really makes the, the sort of uh, dramatic statistical difference. Um, and so, you know, that's that's one factor. It does dip in a little bit to some of the reasons perhaps why millennials uh, are not returning back to church or are sort of leaving and then not coming back. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, that comes out in this article is um, you mentioned one of them in terms of the, the spouse um, you know, whether they end up marrying someone who's religious or not. Um, but it, it, it's interesting to me that um, so much of this is grounded in what their parents did as a sort of strong influence upon them when it comes to whether they end up cycling back to their sort of religious roots. Yeah, and 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 like like so many other things, it goes back to this baby boomer generation mm-hmm. and what how how they've responded and how um, they have acted really impacts millennials and uh, still to this day. I, I mean, not just in religion, but in politics, in culture, in a number of a number of areas, boomers are impacting mm-hmm. us uh, and will for years to come. Right. So l- let me ask you, uh, you being our resident millennial, yeah. Uh, just to be clear, you have not left the church. <laughs> You're very, no, very I much. Would, very I would much not rooted. work at Grace Seminary right. if I had left the church. Very much rooted in the church, which is a good thing, obviously. Um, but you obviously have friends and extended acquaintances, sure, 
uh, who are who have either left the church or have, have at least in some ways departed from their evangelical roots, uh, either in college or post-college um, as they've sort of matured further beyond their college years and, you know, gotten married or gotten into the workforce, et cetera. So what are some of the, what are some of the reasons you see or you are uh, seeing among friends, acquaintances for why some of these, what we might call former evangelicals, or at least yeah. millennials raised in evangelical homes are walking away from either the church or religion or however you want to frame that? Uh, yeah. Um... I would say for some, uh, I, I know some that grew up in Christian school and Christian churches who uh, felt as though they were they were lied to about a number of things, uh, whether it would be uh, how sex works, how safe sex works, uh, how evil uh, the secular world is. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I know one in particular who uh, struggled with that even at his wedding, going, "I want re- religion to have no part of it." Um, when his parents are quite religious, and a number of his friends are. Um, yeah. and, and and his wife, uh, quite religious as well. Hmm. Um, and then and then others, I would say, and I don't necessarily want to dip into this too much, um, uh, but based on uh, based on politics, uh, yeah. uh, I have a number of good friends that are leaving. Uh, I would say evangelicalism uh, mm-hmm. because of uh, some of the rhetoric of politics uh, surrounding refugees or uh, and immigrants and a number of other topics as well. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that is that caught my attention, even just in reading this article, and again, this is from a uh, a secular source. So this is this is yeah. you know not from an any sort of religious perspective, but even in this article, and there's uh, another article we might talk about that even those who are secular when they address this topic uh, have concerns about this trend. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. That they have concerns about um, losing what they perceive as some of the positive benefits that uh, some measure of religious grounding provides in culture. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so um, I, this is maybe just me, but it I find myself thinking that uh, – when when that becomes the talking point, uh, in one sense, the the uh, the issue is already well beyond where it should be. Meaning that even in those conversations, it becomes what is the sort of pragmatic benefit? Mm-hmm. The questions of truth, questions of uh, sort of big picture worldview, are no longer on the front burner. It's well, yeah, we want religion to have some role because it, you know, it 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 grounds people in some measure of morality, and so in it has some sort of larger cultural benefits. So this is not a good thing that every that these millennials are abandoning church or religion. Yeah, it's uh, I, the argument reminded me of uh, ben, basically Benjamin Franklin's take, which mm-hmm. was. I'm not I'm not a religious person, but I think the morals that are baked into religion is really really excellent. Civic responsibility, uh, right. community involvement. That seems to be the argument that um, I think you're referring to the Washington Post article. Well, uh, it's it's hinted at even here in the 538 yes, article at the yes, end in terms of 
you know, just the the loss of the benefits of that. Um, though even kind of presenting that as, well, this is one of the the this is one of the things that millennials are rejecting of you need you need religion to get grounded morals, right? That that part of the previous generation was, well, one of the values of getting that kind of exposure to church and religion was the fact that it gave you morals and morals are good for culture. And millennials are saying, at least some of these, are saying, well, why do you have to go to the church to get that? We can find other sources of morality and yes. that the that the this sort of institutionalized church is not living up to the kind of morals we want anyway. So why should we go to them as a source for morals? Mm-hmm. Yes, and I I think uh, they they do believe that they can get morality elsewhere. Um, yeah. I would say a number a number of uh, my friends are, are that that have left the church are uh, very zealous in their desire for morality. Mm-hmm. Um, quite zealous in their desire for morality. Uh, however, my question is always: by what by what standard? Um, right. What, what are we going back to here? Is this uh, a, a feeling? Is this uh, sort of the the waves of culture? And then what happens when that morality shifts over a generation? Correct. And I think that when when those kinds of discussions often happen, it seems to me that. It, it very much becomes a a morality of one's own making mm-hmm. that that you are still at the center of your own universe in those kinds of approaches that those kinds of approaches rarely have room for or at least I want to push back and say, can you give me an example of something that you thought was right or wrong and then you changed your mind because of evidence or because of some sort of authority beyond yourself mm-hmm. to say, I used to think this was wrong, but now I think it's right based on this authority. And that really uh, shows itself in views on cultural issues, which even are, are hinted at a little bit in some of these articles, but not explicitly really dealt with. I mean, the, the 538 article does uh, mention uh, lack of tolerance as one of the sort of factors in um some people abandoning the church. Yeah, and, and I would say for the peop- people that I know that have walked away, lack of tolerance may be something that they say, but I think it's the um, open aggression to people who are different than you. I think that that's, that's the bigger turnoff uh, for, for my millennial friends who, have, who mm-hmm. have walked away from religion and church. So what you're saying is that as long as someone were uh, not aggressive in their say, advocacy of what a biblical sexuality would look like. In other words, to say, we're, we're not talking, and I know you're not saying this. This is obviously the extreme of like the 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 fringe groups yeah, that are out there. Don't make me a caricature, Matt. No, 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 no. <laughs> But um, that, you know, you've got the, the, the fringe groups of these sort of, you know, God hates homosexuals kind of fringe sure. group. Okay, so we're not talking about that. But... Maybe someone like how how aggressive does one have to be before it's can someone say, I think you're wrong that it's okay for a man and a man to marry. I think it's wrong for uh you know, a man to decide, even though he is biologically male, he wants to be female and so he gets to demand to be treated as, identified as 
a female. Sure, sure. I think uh, I, I think as as long as there, and I can't speak for all millennials on, on this. Well, I'm or, talking about yeah. your, your circle of acquaintances extended out. Yeah, I, I know the 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 way I talk about um, the uh, the the uh, gay marriage discussion or, or anything. Um, I try to have a uh, listening attitude and tone that goes along with that, uh, where mm. they felt heard, uh, and we can we can parse out our disagreements uh, and have a productive con- uh, conversation that that leads to um, some sort of understanding that we don't agree, but we know why we don't agree. Right, and those have been beneficial. There's respect. Uh, there's openness. I think it's the uh, s- some of the um, aggressive older individuals in the church that that have made this a, a, a much more difficult conversation. Um, yeah, I can. I think that's probably true. Um, but I think I would push back with the. In some ways, I think the people who tend to respond more on the aggressive, uh, more confrontational. Uh, level mm-hmm. probably feel like, and I'm not putting myself in that category, but I'm saying I think they probably feel like they are matching the level of intensity and aggression on the sort of liberal end of things, where it's living in a culture that is <clears throat> at large saying, not only are you wrong to say that uh, it's that two men should or man, cannot or should not marry or two women should not marry each other yeah. but that you are intolerant and you should not even really have much of a say in our culture because what, what's striking is if you go back and look at what say for example president obama believed or at least he said he believed about uh about gay marriage back in 2008 he was a yeah, defender of traditional marriage back in 2008 yeah. And in 2012, he changed his position when he was running more, you know, he, he kind of sort of came around or whatever. And and we're just 10 years removed from that, mm-hmm. a little over 10 now, almost 12, but like a decade. And now we're to a point where who's someone who advocates for traditional marriage and says, yeah, actually, um, you know, traditional marriage is is right and biblically grounded and contemporary trends or not, that you are almost dismissed as Neanderthal for holding a view that 10 years ago was mainstream. 10 years ago was mainstream. Yeah. And my, my, my pushback to that is, like, I, frankly, I, I don't think it's a very Christian, Christian response to go, oh, I'm just going to match your level of anger and aggression because you're angry and aggressive. They don't have the spirit. We do. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a demand for um, for civil discussion uh, in the face of aggression, right? Um, yeah. So, so I just I just don't see that as a uh, 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 great uh, a great response by by some of those people. Um, the you know people that are indwelled by the spirit are supposed to be people of self control, yeah. uh, and and. Frankly, I don't think that I don't think they're matching the level of aggression is really helping the conversation. Yeah. Well, we're wandering dangerously close to politics. So I know. I, I want to walk away from that, and <laughs> uh, I I want to move to uh, a related topic in, in sort of looking at some of these trends. 
One trend uh, among millennial evangelicals is that some who are raised in that context, they're not leaving the church altogether. They're not leaving religion or anything like that altogether. But they're moving away from sort of traditional evangelical churches to more liturgical uh, traditions. Yeah, Yeah. we've seen this with um, our own students. We've seen this. uh, I've even had conversations across uh, denominational lines where uh, a friend of mine in Grand Rapids says, yeah, I'm watching a good number of my, my friends who are Protestant move toward a more uh, liturgical services in, in Anglican or in, uh, or in Orthodox or even Catholic. Yeah. So why do you think that is? I've got some thoughts, but why do, yeah. you, why do you think is attracting at least a chunk of millennials raised in an evangelical context to abandon that and say, I want to move more towards these more uh, liturgical traditions? Yeah, I— uh, I mean, I, I don't know. Um, my guess would be that uh, I think millennials grew up in a church that was very production-driven mm-hmm. um, and long for something that's really grounded in, in deep history um, and, and where every aspect of the service has some kind of meaning and rhythm to it uh, that, uh, that is deeply founded in uh, the history of that church or movement. Yeah. That, that's, that's my guess. Um, and sometimes those services are... Are, can spiral into ritualism, um, but sometimes if you're able to reflect on what's going on, it's, it is quite moving and meaningful. Right. And I, I think that there is a dynamic there of um, a, a depth that maybe was lacking in some of the evangelical backgrounds that uh, these students are coming out of and saying, this just feels shallow, whether it's in terms of the preaching, whether it's in terms of just the 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 content of the service itself. And part of what I think is probably going on to some degree is as the evangelical church, at least among a a chunk of it, try to, in essence, mimic the culture, Mm -hmm. these students are like, why why would I go? I can get a better version of that in the culture. So give me something that I can't find in the culture. And they see these more liturgical traditions of – uh, Orthodox or um, even more, you know, higher church like Anglicanism or Episcopalian uh, or even Catholic, and they see that as that's different. And it's uh, I think they're ironically can can be an attraction to what is perceived as a kind of mysticism mm-hmm. embedded in that or connected to that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> Not much more to say on it. Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess part of the question is then, what does that mean for us as evangelicals? Are there? And again, yeah. I, I am not a, I am not a subscriber to the put put the finger in the air, figure out how the wind is blowing, and then make radical changes to the church sure. to try to keep people around or attract new people. That that's not my that's not my gig. But if there is an indication of something that we need to be aware of. And I think there's this trend. I think it's fair to ask, Is are there things that we as evangelicals can do that don't compromise our identity sure. and, our, and our commitments and still try to, in one sense, scratch that itch of recognizing that there is this hunger? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Sure. Um, and I, I assume you mean more than just, hey, let's have a more liturgical service. And, Correct. And... Uh, um, 
Yeah, I, I think we can take elements of liturgy and, and incorporate them into our services. And uh, I think we can have professional, and I actually think our church does a very good job of this, have a professional service um, that doesn't try to mimic the culture, but is also like, hey, these are for people living in 2020. Mm-hmm. So I, so I, that, that's what you mean by professional. Because when I hear professional, some what I— what I tend to gravitate towards is hearing the almost like the church growth movement of it's got to be slick, it's got to be packaged, it's got to be high quality, it's got to be that. And I don't think that's what you're saying. No, no. I, I think uh, it, it just needs to be excellent. Like it, like it needs to be well done. Like I don't think there's anything wrong with a band getting together, putting together a, a wonderful set. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I think we get uh, out of out of line when... We try to create an atmosphere with, you know, uh, smoke and lights and, you know, uh, we're, we're driving motorcycles on. So, you know, it feels gimmicky. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was in a church where a pastor did that one time. Um, yeah. And uh, and so I, th- I think, my goodness, we can just have a, a, a professional, non, you know, $1,000 a service uh, 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 um, Sunday morning uh and and still attract people and and be more about what we're teaching mm-hmm. uh, than how we display things or, or right. interact. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, there is definitely a danger in the li- liturgy trend, mm-hmm. right? I think that, uh, and even those who are advocates of it, if they're relatively self-aware, t- will acknowledge, hey. Uh, Liturgy can quickly become ritualism, right? It can easily just become a sort of ritual that you go through, that you check the boxes. You're like, oh, I come in, we have this reading, we light this candle, the priest or the pastor says this. Sure. You know, that uh, that can easily turn into ritualism. Sure, and that's what's happened across Europe with, with Catholicism right. in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, we have... Uh, there's much more we could talk about with yeah, that. Yeah, we could and, keep going. And we will post uh, links in the show notes um, of some of these articles that we've read and, and reflected on and thought about. But um, I, I think I think it'd be good for us maybe uh, – I'll give a final thought or two on this and then we'll – and then give you an opportunity to do that. And then we should okay. probably land the plane here. But I think that one of the uh, takeaways for me is that uh, – as evangelicals, we need to do a better job of presenting the person of Christ as compelling to follow, right? That mm-hmm. he's beautiful, he's he's glorious, and he's worth our lives. And to think more carefully about some of the, the specific ways uh, that that or what it really looks like to follow Christ in our contemporary culture that goes beyond surface-level pat answers to difficult questions. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Like, I, I, think, uh, um, I think for, for a number of millennials growing up, uh, the, the, it, was, it was very much focused on, all right, in order to be a good Christian, do X, Y, Z. In order, right. you know, here's three trends to being a good dad, or here's three trends to being a good husband, or you know, whatever it may be. And I think uh, we need to show a compelling... Uh, version of Christ, um, and we need to see him as as beautiful, as you said. And I, I think that's I think that's the way forward, and I think that's probably the way forward um, until until he returns. 
Right. Though <clears throat> we can't leave, the, I, I think that one potential danger of that is if you just say that, mm-hmm. that, you know, if each week you're coming in here and great preaching on how amazing Christ is, that's good, that's good. But if there's no, like, because he's amazing and beautiful and glorious, here's how he calls you to live. And that's what it looks like as you walk into work Monday morning. This is what it looks like as you relate to your neighbors. This is what it looks like as you think about these sort of cultural issues of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Here's how your your worldview and your mindset needs to be thinking about those larger issues. Uh, because I do think one reason that people depart or at least walk away is they feel like you're not even talking about issues that I'm wrestling with or even connecting with. And there feels like this disconnect between, sure, Jesus might be great, but I don't know what to do with that. And that doesn't help me with walking into my difficult work situation or you know, or larger cultural issues or things like that. So Right. And I, I, it's a, for lack of a better term, balancing act. Because I felt like that's all I grew up with was, yeah. hey, do these, things at church, do these things at work, do these things at school, do these things here right. or there. And, yeah. and Jesus is there. Absolutely, he is with you. But he's sort of like this feeling that's out there right that right somehow guides me yeah. right well uh since this is uh episode two yeah we got to pick an athlete we got to have we got to have an athlete so uh we can let's mention a few that we've sort of considered that sort of make the that made the final cut of yeah of of, of thinking about so uh we get, we have on our list we have derek jeter yeah um uh new york yankees um Pains me to have him on the list as a Mets fan. Uh, yeah, he owns the Miami Marlins now, so he's he's even larger than just playing, you know, shortstop in the Bronx. Right. Uh, we also have Rick Barry. Yeah. Um, who is uh, who's famous for his free throw style? Old school NBA player. Yeah, way back in the day. Um, we also have Moses Malone on the yeah. list of potentials. Uh, and I don't I don't know that much about Moses Malone, uh, partly because I'm I'm not a huge basketball fan, but. Well, he was a uh, a pretty significant uh, center, played almost 20 years in the NBA, and won like five or six rebounding uh, titles in the NBA, was on a uh, championship team with Dr. J in 83, I think, with the Sixers, and was a uh, – he was a, 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 a force down mm. low, um, and – Think, you know, again, thinking old school, right? Old school centers, not guys who stretch the floor and shoot threes, but like back to the basket. Exactly, yeah. guys who never left the the paint really in terms of their offense and defense. Um, was a phenomenal rebounder and a pretty significant player in the NBA for years. And then another NBA player that we at least talked about, yeah, Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd, a little a little bit more contemporary in the sense that his career was in the 90s and early 2000s yeah. and now he has bounced around as a coach he's a coach with the assistant coach with the Lakers now I believe yeah he was um one of the sort of bigger point guards um masterful passer racked up lots of assists and over the course of his career got better as a shooter yeah developed a three-point shot toward the end of his yeah. career yeah um I remember he was uh, my dad did fantasy basketball like late 90s early 2000s before it was yeah, as widespread as it is, and he had Jason Kidd on his team. And I remember talking about Jason Kidd with my dad <laughs> yeah. about his fancy basketball team. Yeah, he was uh, he he was definitely he, good number of triple doubles in there in his career as well. So. Yeah, yeah. NBA did he, does he have a championship? 
I don't think so. He didn't get one with the Mavericks? Was he on that team? He might have been. Uh, why don't you look that up while, uh, while I stall? Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, regardless uh, of, of who we pick here, all these are great choices. Um, however, uh, I think we've decided that it, it's hard not to go with Derek Cheater. Yes, that's uh, correct. You know, uh, he's from uh, he's from Kalamazoo, Michigan, I believe, which is not far from where we're located. Uh, played in the Yankees organization, uh, has one of those single digit Yankee numbers that, if it's not retired yet, it will be. Yeah, and uh, it will live in infamy as as he is number two. He is he is number two. Um, he was on that Mavericks team. Okay, I thought that, so. That beat that beat the Heat. Yeah. Uh, in 2011. So he does have his NBA what title a great, there. That was a great finals. That was a very Dirk. Uh, very competitive anyway, finals. Anyway, yeah. But yeah, we went with, uh, with Derek Jeter. And, and your head's not going to explode as a Mets fan. I mean, the Mets were really bad. <laughs> um, we did lose him in the 2000 World Series. Uh, yeah. But um, some of the plays he made were, were incredible. I It's just his going into the hole to get a ground ball mm-hmm. and then jumping and throwing is iconic. Yes, yes. Though um, I think his reputation was also helped by his sort of larger social life. I wasn't going to bring up his dating life, (laughs) but I think that contributed to his uh, to his legend. Which I believe he's married now, right? That I don't know. I think he's I think he's married to a woman like fifteen years younger than him. Yeah, it could be. Uh, One thing that I do know is that he was famous for when he would host parties. He was relentless about forcing guests to leave their cell phones at the door like he had an area where basically all cell phones so that he was incredibly private yeah right so that there are so that there would be no sort of leaking of oh hey someone took a picture on their phone of you know a slightly awkward or inappropriate scene or something like that that he was relentless about that you come to my party the phone stays at the door and what, yeah. what stays in Derek Jeter's apartment, what happens in Derek Jeter's apartment stays in Derek Jeter's apartment. Yes. Yeah. And as far as we know, I can't think of any scandals that, that really involved him or any, any big problems. Yeah, um, that I'm aware of. Which so, I'm sure they're out yeah, there. I'm sure, yeah. yeah. So uh, let's talk about one thing we liked, and uh, I'm going to go first okay, because— I have a bit of a story. Yeah, yours yeah. has a bit of a story attached to it. So uh, our segment of one thing we like is something that caught our attention, and— uh, I'm going to go with a song. Uh, there's a song that has been done by uh, a group called City Alight called Jesus Strong and Kind that uh, has really been an, an encouragement to me in the last few weeks. Mm. Simple, beautiful lyrics. Uh, I encourage uh, listeners to go ahead and check that out on YouTube. You can find that pretty easily. So. That's my one thing I like this week. What about you? All right. Uh, one thing I like this week uh, is a podcast that uh, just had a second season start, uh, but it is the podcast called Limetown. Yeah. Uh, and I started listening to this podcast probably the first season five or so years ago, uh, and it's set up as an investigative reporter looking into the disappearance of 300 people in central Tennessee. Uh, okay. And the journalist goes, you know, I... Uh, my my uncle was in this community. My uncle uh, is one of the people that disappeared, uh, and she begins to investigate. And I'm listening to this on a drive, uh, I think, from Tennessee to Indiana. Uh, so a long drive, and I'm listening to it, and I am just gripped by what is being said. Like, oh, my goodness, that happened? Oh, my goodness, that happened? <laughs> and it was like, really? But it was like also believable. 
And so uh, I was just believing this to be true. I called my mom in the middle of the drive. I'm like, who, who had lived in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I said, have you heard of this? She goes, is that the town where the people disappeared? I'm like, yes. And so like, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> all into this. I eventually get uh, stopped for lunch on my drive and start Googling it and realize that the podcast is simply fake and, uh, <laughs> and not real, um, even though I believed it to be real for, for five or six hours. And, but that was uh, a fun five or six hours. It right? was incredible. And the podcast is very well done. It's a little, it's, it, it is a horror podcast, okay. um, does have some language at some different times. Yep. So uh, there's, a, there's a trigger warning there for you. But, uh, but worth listening to. The first season's fantastic. And they just started doing the second season. Gotcha. Okay. Well, we have definitely uh, wandered about our. Uh, yeah, our, no, our we've, we've, we went over our. Time. I know. Yeah. We're, we're oh trying, folks. We're sorry. We're trying. Um, but uh, <laughs> we have accomplished what we set out to do uh, covering our various and sundry podcasts. So until next time, the Lord bless you all real good. Later. Later.